Welcome to the King of Roots podcast, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. On today's episode, Scott and I continue in our series, A Time to Politic, within which we have been examining the politics of the New Testament from Jesus of Nazareth to John of Patmos. And on today's episode, we arrive at John's apocalypse, John of Patmos. Scott, welcome back to the podcast. Cody, good to be with you. We're uh, we're on familiar turf with one another here, talking we are about indeed. the Book of Revelation. Yes, I feel like yeah. I ought to I ought to interview you. No, 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 no. That's not how we're going to do this today. It's uh, it's going to be back with you. We had a bit a bit of a hiatus, but we got to see one another recently in San Antonio for the Society of Biblical Literature, which was great. Got to have breakfast yes. with you and Chris, which is delightful. Here a paper on Eusebia and the pastorals. All a good time. And now, again, on familiar territory, as you mentioned, as we come back uh, to John's revelation. So, yeah, we've been doing this series looking at the politics of the New Testament. And now we come to what some would consider to be perhaps the most political book of the New Testament. How does that land for you, Scott? Well, I think it is, uh, in a sense, what, yes, it is very political. Uh, it is more political directly than other books, even though it likes to pretend it's being indirect. There's not many people who are fooled by a city on seven hills. <laughs> right. Uh, and uh, so the, um, and everybody taking their money and all the cargo going, it's all going to Rome. Um, but at the same time, it is, it is more political than other documents in the New Testament. But not as much as people would like to suggest, because the theme, let's say the themes of politics in the book of Revelation are a, let's say, a socio-critical, theopolitical critique hmm. of corrupted power. And that's hardly new in the New Testament. It's not like Paul writes vendettas against Nero or whoever. Um but Jesus and the kingdom of God, just the language kingdom of God is has got political uh, connotations. Calling the church ecclesia has some kind of political stance. So there's this subtle sabotage or subversion of the political powers. Paul is willing to turn these things into principalities and powers. So the book of Revelation goes further than other books but it's not um, in a different lane it's just uh, a faster train yeah i like hey, that's that. pretty good po- that that's is pretty that is good, good poem that was good i like that a lot yeah the other thing i think we could mention here too is this is this kind of critique is very jewish in nature which we'll come to it's not as though yeah. there's no precedent for this before the book of revelation but uh, maybe we'll uh, back up a little bit and i want to say i think we hit um interesting territory uh, culturally right now, uh, you know, as uh, uh, you in your nation move towards an election, which is one of the reasons why we're, you know, doing this podcast on politics in the first place. But but revelation is of particular interest for people in this moment also uh, with events happening on the other side of the globe. And so there's this interesting convergence of politics of revelation and common readings of revelation. So maybe I'll just say, uh, what do we need to know about how we read this book well before we get to some of that more political stuff. What is the book of Revelation? What is John's Apocalypse? What are a few things we should know about it to read it well? Well, 
uh, I think a standard approach to this would be, and I think it's correct, is that this sounds like, barks like, walks like apocalyptic literature mm. at some level. Okay, there is no proto paradigmatic apocalyptic text that you measure everything against. You know, like a letter of Paul could be measured against other letters of Paul, but there's nothing like this. Uh, but it has it has hallmarks of apocalyptic literature, visions, lots of graphic uh, characters, figures. Um, it's it's critical of a political process. It's divine intervention in history, judgment on corruptions, the establishment of a new Jerusalem. All these things have the connotations of apocalyptic that the only way this world can be redeemed is if God steps in and uh, disrupts what's going on to establish a new reality. So I, I think that's that's one of the things we have to do. But the other thing is we have to shed the speculative approaches that have infected the church since the beginning of the 20th century, late 19th century, in which uh, people learned to read the book of Revelation by asking who in the modern world might be fulfilling the predictions, the prophecies of the book of Revelation. So this all comes down to the beasts. The odd thing is there's two beasts in Revelation, and most people want to find one Antichrist. And they they have always found some pretty... Uh, unlikable characters that can fit the fit the bills so right now uh people like putin could fit the bill although he's now been eclipsed by netanyahu which complicates these speculative readings because he's jewish and these are supposed to be the guys on the right side so now it's hamas so we'll put it on hamas or should we put it on the palestinians or should we put it on the united states or should we put it on anybody who's opposing israel this is the language that a lot of people have learned to read the book of Revelation with. And I am happy to say that every one of them has been wrong. And I don't think people have learned the lesson of narrowing these figures in the book of Revelation to a specific future figure. It's like, okay, it is a specific figure, they would say. But we were just wrong about Putin, or we were wrong about uh, Hitler, or we were wrong about Stalin, or we were wrong about Mussolini. It was just one figure after another, but it's still a single figure. So they, uh, it's called cognitive dissonance. They, they are actually wrong, but they know they're ultimately right. So they've got to kind of postpone and start thinking about it in a different way. I think this is a mistake. I think the book of Revelation does have... Um, a third thing, and that is it teaches us how to, it teaches a first century church, churches in Western Asia Minor, how to think about the Roman politics in the context of the true people of God being justified and justice being, bring, being brought to earth. It teaches that group of people how to think about Rome a an empire um, a politically corrupt empire so politically corrupt john will call it the whore of babylon 
and that is a mockery of the goddess Roma in Rome. Um, so John really goes to extreme lengths to let Rome have it. But the, the download for us is the lessons as we listen to John talk about how to think about Rome, we learn some lessons about how to think about political corruption in our world. So those are those are some things. And I now I turn it to you to what would you add to that? Yeah, no, that's helpful. I mean, I think I think most obviously when people take up and read the book, this is uh, an, this is an apocalypse. You've already mentioned it's an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Uh, it also comes in the form of prophecy. You know, flourishing is the one who, you know, reads the words of this prophecy. So it has a prophetic flavor, which often I think people tend to imagine means predicting the future, but it it doesn't. Yes. Prophetic, prophetic literature is never so much about predicting the future as much as much as it's about the the present, and yeah. uh, in particular in Hebrew Bible calling. Uh, the people of God back to faithfulness in their moment, you know, their allegiance, their sort of covenant renewal, all of those types of things. And then it's it's holistically viewed in this sort of strange encyclical letter form where it's going to be read or performed in the seven churches in Western Asia Minor, which means that those uh, letters that we talk about in chapters two and three are not the letters. They're actually just speeches. The whole thing is this kind of letter. So yeah, we get this apocalyptic pulling back of the curtain that is prophetic in nature that comes in letter form. And as you mentioned, it has its eye on uh, Babylon, uh, Rome uh, in 17 and 18. And one of the things that we argue in our book is that if you're going to read Revelation well, in a sense, you need to read it backwards or you need to begin with Babylon. And so talk to me a little bit more about Babylon. It, so this isn't, you're saying, an end time empire that's going to emerge, but rather John is speaking in code here, not so subtle code about Rome in his time. So talk to us about Babylon and maybe where this imagery comes from for John and why he's using it. Okay, yeah, I wanna just back up to say one thing you were right you were dead dead on when you were talking about Old Testament prophets. Um, they were talking about the present, but they also were unmasking the mm. sins of the present, especially yes. among leaders yes, in yes, Israel, of course. and calling them to account. And if they didn't repent, there would be a, a bad future. If they did repent, there would be a good future. Mm. That's sort of the, where those prophets start. That John has that flavor about it. There's a presentness about it. He's talking about the present. To think that those Old Testament prophets were only talking about something six centuries later, uh, I think completely fails their value in their world. Of course. And John was doing that. He was speaking to his world. And it becomes a template for thinking about our world. Hmm. All right, now Babylon. You know, you gave a great lecture in our class about Babylon. So you know quite a bit about Babylon. But Babylon is for the book of Revelation, a trope mm. of a corrupted political empire that opposes the people of God, persecutes them, even takes them into exile, and who will eventually be defeated by the God of Israel. So this becomes a real nation. It was a real nation. But at, at the same time, by the first century, we have some other contemporary Jewish texts who are calling Rome Babylon. 
And even First Peter does the very same thing. So this is early Christian lingo for, it's sort of, oh, we, we call it Babylon, don't we? And they're not, it, it's not hard, you can't hide it. They're, it's too public for them. They're, they're willing to make statements about Rome as a corrupted political empire. It's opposing the people of God. But I think that we can read Revelation 17 through a little bit into chapter 19 and see the major concerns that John has. And in our book, we outline these, and both of us contributed to these, so uh, you probably have them memorized. I don't. I don't have those kinds of things memorized. There, things don't stick in my head the way they used to. As Jimmy Dunn once said to me, there, my head sometimes feels like Swiss cheese. There's just <laughs> there's gaps in it where it didn't used to have gaps. So, one of the big themes for me uh, in Revelation that teaches is anti-God yep. or idolatry. There's a, a Revelation 17 through 18 and 19. Now, this is so Old Testament prophet. This is so apocalyptic. This is so typical of Qumran. It's everywhere. Is these Gentiles worship false gods. Mm. And they're, in a sense, their their way of life is corrupted by their lack of orientation to the one true God. And Revelation is stinging critique of idolatry. And John has to have his eyes on Roma, the goddess of Rome, as well as the various gods that are in everybody's, every elite person's home. As you entered, you would have seen a shrine with gods and little sacrifices made to it or offerings. Um, and so they're called the Lares. And so th- this is, this is a, a major part of what John wants to say. And it is more it is as much Jewish as it is Christian to critique Rome for its idolatry. Hmm. And it's bigger than religion. It's the whole way of life because politics, family, civic duty are all connected to idolatry for John. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now you've got a point. Let's go uh we could combine murderous and militaristic in one. Yes. Um Murderous and militaristic have the distinction that murderous is persecution of the people mm-hmm. of God, mm-hmm. and militarism is the power to kill and to cap and capture other countries in order to exploit them and to dominate. So those two are a major feature of the Roman Empire of Babylon, and I I look at this and I think you know. The way too many evangelicals in the United States complain about being persecuted is just so weak compared to what's going on in John. These are people who are being put to death like Antipas in Revelation 2 through 3. These are people who are put to death because of their testimony of Jesus. That's a big, that's a much bigger issue than the fact that, you know, you don't get to have a prayer meeting at the high school anymore they you can't use the the rooms in the high school but militarism is is ever present Mm. the militaristic power of rome is legendary it was called pax romana to capture another country enslave millions over the decades of the empire 
the centuries, uh, enslave millions, exploit them as labor force, uh, exploit them as sexual force, uh, exploit them in any way possible, take their resources, and draw it all into the city of Rome hmm. so that Rome can have all that it needs. Well, we have, the United States is probably, if it's not the, it is one of the top two or three countries in the world of military power. And we are the ones who blew up Japan with a nuclear warhead and the movie Oppenheimer was a recently, I don't know if you watched it. Did you watch it? I haven't seen it yet, but Chris, I'm a big Chris Nolan fan. I don't know who that is, but he must be the director. You he got is, that yeah. figured out way ahead of me. But the one of the most dramatic scenes for me was at the end, the people were in a shelter sort of building in Arizona when they first uh, heard the news of the actual bombing in, in Hiroshima. And they were all clapping and cheering. Hmm. And I thought, okay, that was a scientific success that was disastrous for the world. Hmm. That, is, that is the way Rome could have a triumph in the city of Rome, parading slaves and the exploited and the conquered, kill some people at the end of this, and people would clap and say, we have won. But at the same time, it is detrimental to the world and to society, to peace in the world. Yeah. So when your peace is based on the fact that if you rebel, you'll be killed, that's not peace. That's domination. And Rome is famous for this. So uh, the, another characteristic is opulence. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, the way the, uh, the whore of Babylon in Revelation 17 is dressed is just dripping with bling, bling, bling as a sign of, look what I've got. I've, I can dress any way I want. I've got everything that everybody desires. I can wear purple. I can wear gold. I can wear silver. Um, all this sort of thing is a sign of opulence that is the exploitation of other people in the world. And it's very noticeable. I don't know, Cody, if you've ever traced this out. I haven't outlined it and given it as a lecture ever. But many of the things that are described in Revelation 17, 18, 19 are then characterized by New Jerusalem. It's like it's all given back to God. Mm-hmm. The stuff that has been uh, stolen from other people and given to Rome will all be taken away from it and it will return to God for the glory of God. Now, that sounds like uh, kind of schadenfreude of, okay, we're going to do the same thing that Rome did, but I think I would give the book of Revelation uh, a benefit of the doubt on the fact that it uh, it wants these things to be for God rather than to exploit other people and to have one king or one group of people have mm-hmm. it all. And it's a it's a massive audience in in Revelation twenty and twenty two, so that uh, that's another one. But we've already talked about opulence and ex- so it leads to the ex- economically exploitative that uh, cargo in yeah. the, in the chapters of all. It's really quite remarkable. I don't know what you've noticed about that, but it every time I read it, I think, wow, look at all this. These were the things that everybody valued, you know. 
They've got uh, BMW. They've got uh, they've got the biggest TV screen that is made. They've got all the speakers that are made. They have all these devices in there. All these things are coming to Rome. Everything that everybody wanted. So yeah, yeah let me ahead. let me let me read it for us. Eighteen twelve cargo of gold, silver, precious stone and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet. Every citron wood, every ivory vessel, every vessel from costly wood, brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and spices and incense and ointment and frankincense and wine and olive oil, flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and horses and chariots and enslaved bodies and cells of humans. Uh, yeah, that's kind of where it ends. We get this cargo list that seems yes. to climax uh, again with... Uh, the enslavement of humans. Yeah, new world slavery. Every time yeah. I read it, I think of all that happened for the people who were transported from Africa to the United States and to Brazil, all the way up and down the eastern coasts of North America and South America. Brazil was one of the top places for this. So this is the exploitation of other people. This, this is what other people are making and value and Rome wants everything. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't want to have uh, a nice home. They want to have the biggest home on the block. They don't. They don't want to have a nice TV. They want to have the biggest TV on the block. So it's it's just one thing after another. They have to have. Every, and not only that, they want not only what they want. They want what you've got, and they're going to take what you've got and give it to their own people. So it's it's theft. It's mm -hmm. robbery. It's uh, economic exploitation, such a major characteristic. And then our seventh and, characteristic was arrogance, which in some sense yeah. summarizes all of these things. I mean, the the woman sits and uh, brags to herself, so to speak, that, you know, she is enthroned and her time yeah. will, ne will never come to an end. I am not a widow. Mm -hmm. I will never mourn. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, those... Those um, cargo ships coming from different countries, all those kings and merchants of the world are the ones who are standing aghast, looking at the demise of the city of Rome. And that shows that she is going to mourn and she is going to be a widow. Mm. Her former paramours of these other nations, that's how John talks, are going to turn away from her. They're going to find someone else to adore and uh, it's it's strong language, but I, I think when I look at this, I think it gives us a way of thinking about political powers. Political powers are intoxicating; they are exploitative. You know, I, I don't believe that everything a government does is exploitation. I don't think everything is corruption. I think there's a lot of good in government, but there's a lot of bad, and it doesn't seem many times that politicians have the capacity to discern the difference or partisan political aspirants, they don't seem to have the capacity to recognize and yes. discern that what they're getting themselves involved in is a moral corruption of their own soul and their own life. So, you know, one of the things that we've been trying to highlight through these conversations are the ways in which different circumstances and different documents from our New Testament collection 
will engage in these types of political conversations differently. One of the things I've noticed with students in teaching Revelation is what's jarring for them is the black and white nature of Revelation at times, that for John, it's all bad. Burn it down. Like, tear, you know, we we will nuance in our conversations and say, say what you just said, which is, you know, there are good and there are bad in these political structures, and it often feels as though we can't discern the difference. But John just says, come out of her. So what what yeah, do we yeah. what do we do with something like that? And I know my students really wrestle with this um, this rhetoric that John gives them about you know come out have nothing to do. How do we respond to that? When let me just say one more thing: the empires are anti god. They're opulent, murderous, image driven, militaristic, economically exploitative. They're arrogant. Ultimately, they want to dominate. And so John says, come out. Yeah. What what do we do with that? Is there a moment? I guess one of my questions might be: Is there a is there a time in which, as the people of God, we shout, "Burn it to the ground"? Is that what John's saying here, or what is he saying? Well, Cody, this is this is really interesting. I mean, you know, the way I would put it is apocalyptic, apocalyptic gonna apocalyptic. <laughs> yeah. Babylon gonna Babylon. This is the w- yeah, this is the way apocalyptic rhetoric works. Yeah. It's exaggeration. It's dualistic. It's either good or evil. Mm-hmm. You know, it's Tov or Ra. It's Kakos or it's Agathos. Agathos, yeah. You know, it's, those are the Greek and Hebrew words. That's, that's the way apocalypse works. And some of the greatest literature that you and I have grown up with, I grew up a lot, a lot longer ago than you did, <laughs> And that we've enjoyed, and you've enjoyed more of this than I have, because I've listened to you talk about this stuff, trades in this. Okay, so I remember one time I sat down to read some of the world's great classics. So I started with Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey. Then I read Virgil. Then I read Dante Ali. Uh, well, for a student of mine called him Danny Ali and Jerry. Uh, Dante Alighieri. Uh, the Divine Comedy. Then I read um, Pilgrim's Progress, mm. and all these books operate, all these great pieces of literature operate with dualistic thinking of what is good and what is evil. Yeah. And I think that's the way I look at it. I look at it, yes, this is an exaggeration. There's utterly no nuance in the book of Revelation. Uh, you're either on the on Team Babylon or you're on Team Lamb. You're, there's no there's nobody in between. Although there's a lot of people who seem to be believing in the whole process. So I would say that people who read it and say I'm bothered by the the uh, binary thinking say, well, you should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's completely fair. But if you were going to write an apocalypse, you would do the same thing. Yeah, because that's how. I mean, Harry Potter. You've probably read Harry Potter. I, I have. I have read a. My wife has read four volumes of that film. Um, and it's probably the same kind of thing. It's, it's got this evil world, Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia. It's good and bad. So that's what that's what apocalyptic does. No, I love that. I think that's a good corrective. It's one of the things I try to invite my students into contemplating. Also, if Revelation wants to, in some sense, uh, get past our... Uh, rationalistic Pauline brain centers where we think everything is about succinct arguments about justification by faith, which when you read Paul, you realize there's a lot more going on than that. But that this binary thinking uh, that it causes us to feel something. And then I just invite my students to contemplate, well, 
what does John want us to feel? What is he inviting mm -hmm. us to consider? And I guess let's let's push further here on this conversation. So John wants to apocalypse uh, the empires and the political processes of this world for us so that we can see them clearly. And that's part of what's happening here. So do we need also, is John saying we need an apocalypse to see the kingdoms of this world for clearly for what they are and the governmental structures and the political processes? Do we need apocalypse to see them for what they are, too? Is that part of what John's saying here? Um, I don't know if John is suggesting that this is the way people need to be writing books so that we can all see this. But I think what we learn from John mm. is that this pulls back the curtain in yeah. ways that other pullings of the curtain don't do. So, for instance, um, on Instagram, I follow certain people who are talking about Israel right now, and they are relentlessly against Israel. But in their relentlessness, yeah, I think it's exaggeration at times. And they only see bad, but they see things that other people aren't seeing. And they say things. They want to give the numbers of all the people who've been killed by Israel in the Gaza Strip or even in the West Bank. They want to call attention to the laws of international treaties that are being broken. It's just one thing after another. And the wave of one critique after another eventually starts to make you think, you know, there's something seriously wrong here as well. And mm -hmm. then there are other people who want to talk about Hamas. And I'm, I've read stuff about Hamas that is just blood curdling yes. of the sorts of behavior. And there's other people who want to talk about the Palestinians and, and, and their role in some of this. And I don't think any, you know, i I had a conversation with some people at SBL. I, I don't think anybody's innocent here. This is, uh, this is a complicated situation. But I think apocalyptic people who will go for the exaggeration, the stereotypes, the evil versus good, to call a spade a big, a big spade um, rather than, you know, it's a small one. We don't, we don't know that. That sort of language uh, confronts us with the possibilities of evil in our world. And I think we need that. I think we need some political commentary that is relentlessly hard on all three so that we can be enlightened and become more faithful in our response to these, this situation. And I think the same thing happens. You know, there's a, an amazing book with a, with a misspelled title. Uh, uh, called Oxford University Press called Prophecies of Godlessness hmm. and uh, and it's got prophecies misspelled and um, oh, no. it turns it into a verb instead of a noun and one of the authors is his last name is McKnight so it drew my attention the other one is Matthews and it's a wonderful book about the apocalyptic rhetoric of politics in the United States since it was founded this has always been the case. Thomas Jefferson wrote some apocalyptic messages. Hmm. And I think that though that language in the world of politics gets our attention. So right now, the Democrats and the Republicans are going to start ramping up their apocalyptic rhetoric. Yep. And we could say, you know, you people ought to be more nuanced. And frankly, I would rather hear some conversations on TV that actually talk about facts and policies 
and what's going on in Washington, D.C., rather than, you know, this group is evil. If you give in to them, democracy is over. All that. That's apocalyptic rhetoric. Uh, but it gets our attention. Yeah. That's what John's doing. He got people, he got the early church's attention, and they felt really good about themselves that we're going to be on, we're on Team Lamb, and Team Lamb is eventually going to be a part of a just world, and we want to devote our life to that. That's what it does. And I think, I think that's why people like Chronicles of Narnia, mm. and that's why they like Lord of the Rings, and Harry Potter, and the Iliad, the Odyssey, and Danny, Allie, and Jerry. They like mm-hmm. all that stuff. Danny, Allie, and Jerry. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's really helpful. I Maybe as I we begin to end, you know, one of the things uh, that I read as a, as a criticism of our work that I'd love to hear you talk about is I think for some people to say that, to jump so quickly to Babylon when you're reading Revelation, uh, that makes some people nervous because they think this is just about apocalypsing Jesus. It's just about revealing Jesus. You're putting too much emphasis on Babylon and not enough emphasis on Jesus. What What would you say to somebody like that who just thinks, hey man, just stick to the Jesus stuff. Revelation's not really about politics, not so much focus on this, but focus on the Jesus thing. What might you say in response to somebody who's who's in that position or feels that way? Well, I'd want to know who it is and what context, but but what I would ultimately say is they're they're wrong. Uh, yes, there's Christology in the Book of Revelation, but there's a better way of writing Christology than to turn it into an apocalypse about Babylon and New Jerusalem. These are the primary actors in the Book of Revelation. Yep. This is a book about the people of God being tested by Babylon's pressures. Mm-hmm into whether they will be faithful or they will cave in, and at the same time a promise that the people of God will end up in the new Jerusalem because God will bring justice through the Lamb and evil will be destroyed and forever uh, erased. So um, there is there is sort of a... I think it's a, it's a failure to admit what the book of Revelation is, to say that this is a book about Christology. Of course, there's Christological themes in it. Yes, Revelation 1 is loaded with this, but the language of it is the language of the Son of Man, well, other things, um, who is going to be victorious over the kingdoms of this world Hmm. and will haul all the people of God before the Ancient of Days and offer the people of God for the New Jerusalem. So the Christology of the book is the, what feeds the Babylonian, the, the theme of Babylon. So I would say, um, of course, there's Christology. But to say that if you just focus on Christology, you'll get the message of the book, you will not get yeah. the message of the book. That's really helpful. So so we're talking about uh, the book of Revelation and chapter 17 and 18, the way that Babylon, Rome is apocalypse to us, the way John is writing about political powers in his day and what we can learn about those things. And we see John highlighting seven key characteristics, at least as we identify them, but there are more we could say yeah, yeah. that these political plot, they're, they're anti-God, there's opulence, they're murderous image, militaristic, economically exploitative and arrogant. And we summarize all of this with the word domination, that these political powers want to dominate. Scott, any last words about these chapters of Revelation as we end our conversation today? Yes, I mean, um, when the purpose of politics is power over, Hmm. 
we have the sign, the ultimate sign of Babylon. Winning at all costs is Babylon. Politics run by the Lamb is a politics that leads to a new Jerusalem where the gates are open because it's safe and because it's welcome for all, where everybody is fed by the fruit on the tree and the, and the drinks that are available, and that there's a, um, a, an active market of joy and fellowship forever and ever in the presence of God. Hmm. That's, that's a proper politics, and it, it teaches that. And it teaches that Jesus, the Father, they will be the core of, hmm. of our vision. And the strange, the strange measurements of New Jerusalem, fourteen hundred miles high. That's got a. That's got a strange. That's way up there, man. Um, I've never calculated how far up that is, but I know it's about from Jerusalem to Rome is fourteen hundred miles. Hmm. Um, so it's sort of Rome's coming to, to Jerusalem in a new city. I I think that the book teaches us to look forward to justice and to live in, into that justice as we walk today as witnesses, as worshiping the Son of God, uh, worshiping the Lamb, and it will transform us into being the kinds of people that Jesus wants us to be in this world. Well, you've been listening to the Kingdom Roots podcast, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Scott and I have been talking about Babylon the Great in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. We'll look forward to chatting with you again next time.